Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. It's lunchtime at Tim Hortons, and we're serving up a special deal just for you. Our new $5.99 lunch deal includes your choice of any lunch sandwich and a side of crunchy kettle chips. Because what's lunch without a little crunch? And the sandwich choice is all yours. Like a ham and Swiss, Chipotle chicken wrap, BLT, and more. Made to order just the way you like it. Tim Horton's new lunch deal. Simple, delicious, and just $5.99. Now that's a good deal. Only at your neighborhood Tim's. U.S. only. Price and participation vary. Terms apply. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart, and I'm very forgiving, but, like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Welcome to Tech Stuff, a production from iHeartRadio. Hey there, and welcome to Tech Stuff. I'm your host, Jonathan Strickland. I'm an executive producer with iHeartRadio and I love all things tech. And today we're going to listen to another classic episode of Tech Stuff. This one's titled Tech Stuff Watches Independence Day. It originally published on July 3rd, 2013, seven years ago. Wow. So as the name suggests, we sat down and watched Independence Day, and then we had a discussion about the technology in that film and, you know, how it stacks up against reality. Hope you guys enjoy. To start off, we should probably give an overview of the film for those of you who have not seen it. Now, this movie came out in 1996. Right. Now, in 1996, uh, there were a few other things that were going on at that time. Uh, That's the year that DVDs launched in Japan. Wow. Yeah, so when I actually asked my friends if anyone had a copy of this, they all said they had it on VHS. And, and I, we said, what's VHS? We don't even remember that medium. I don't even know if I have anything that will still play a tape. Uh, there were other things that happened that year in, in the world of technology. Internet Explorer 3 launched. That was uh, uh, Microsoft's big browser. And, of course, the 3 was one of the, the bigger ones of the releases. Uh, Windows NT 4.0 was released by Microsoft as well eBay got started. A little uh, first-person shooter by the name of Duke Nukem 3D launched, and um, that ended up, of course, getting a lot of people really excited. They enjoyed the game. I, I include myself. A sequel myself. was planned. Yes, a sequel was planned and would end up being vaporware for more than a decade. 
there was a certain uh, animal that was born that year. Uh, yeah, Dolly the cloned sheep was born that That's year. That's right. First, first cloned mammal. Yep, Dolly the sheep, first mammal successfully cloned. Uh, that's also the year that IBM's Deep Blue defeated the chess champion Gary Kasparov. Yeah. So man versus machine and machine wins. Yeah, it was also the, uh, the, the Telecommunications Act of 1996, strangely enough, happened in 1996. Yeah. Um, and, and that basically um, allowed the Internet to sort of be lumped in along with uh, broadband signals and um, allowed cable companies to start offering Internet services. People were really excited about this new megabit speeds that were going to start happening. Right, right. We were finally getting away from the kilobit speeds that we were thinking of with the old dial modems and you know this is this is back when the internet is pretty young as far as the general public is concerned the internet itself had been around for a while but really only research institutions universities some government of, uh, facilities military that kind of stuff those organizations had access to it but anyone outside of that really did not have a whole lot of access to the internet unless they just happened to work someplace or go to school someplace that had it uh, at this point in 96 we've actually got the point where the world wide web is a thing but still very early on in right. the in the this was kind of the GeoCities era of the public yeah, internet. Exactly, yeah. And and according to uh, uh, thepeoplehistory.com, that they say that in the 12 months of 1996, the internet host computer number goes from about 1 million computers to 10 million computers. So obviously explosive growth at this time, although it's still very much a new thing, which kind of comes into play a little bit in the film Independence Day. So Independence Day... It was a movie by Dean Devlin and Roland Emmerich. Those are the writers, yeah. Yeah, and Emmerich is, uh, of course, he's become known as the guy who likes to blow up the earth. <laughs> uh, he's blown up the earth in several movies uh, and other projects, things like everything from Godzilla to 2012, The Day After Tomorrow. Uh, he's really big on worldwide destruction. And, of course, we should mention that not too long ago, it was announced that sequels to Independence Day had been planned, two sequels, um, with the first one coming out in like 2015, I think, or 2014. Um, and Independence Day stars some some folks that you might recognize, like Will Smith would be the big name. Mm -hmm. uh, Bill Pullman, who I always get mixed up with Bill Paxton. Uh, if you put them side by side, I would not be able to name one versus the other, and I, I have a fifty-fifty shot. You have you have this this problem pretty commonly. Um, also, I do. also Jeff Goldblum, who is very famous for being um, wacky scientist at the yeah. time due to uh, Jurassic Park. Right. He's also known as uh, he does this stuttering <laughs> thing where he. <laughs> Oh, I find uh, that charming. <laughs> I do, too. I, I enjoy it. Uh, Randy Quaid, also in the movie, as a uh, as what you assume is a delusional drunk, mm -hmm. uh, although apparently he he's was telling the truth. Yeah, he's yeah. not delusional. Um, Adam Baldwin's in it. Tiny, chibi Adam Baldwin. He's so young and adorable. It's very cute. Yeah, it's it's definitely uh, well before his Firefly days. Yeah, uh, and, Brent, Brent Spiner, right, uh, right. Data. Data from, from Star Trek Next Generation, mm -hmm. although he does not play Data from Star Trek Next Generation in this movie. That would have been confusing. So to give a brief rundown on what the film's all about, in case you have not seen it, uh, there are going to be a lot of spoilers in this podcast, but essentially it's 96. I think it's safe to spoil it now. Yeah, I think that's the statute of limitations. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so the, the movie is all about how uh, this alien invasion force comes into to, uh, Earth's orbit 
and then lays waste to the major cities on Earth in preparation for a full-on invasion. And it's about how Earth forces kind of mount up a defense, a desperate defense to fight off these alien invaders. And this all happens, of course, on uh, on uh, from July 2nd to July 4th, which here in the United States is kind of a, a celebration of independence, and hence the term Independence Day. Yeah. It's extremely... Um, Oh, what's it? Eth- not not ethnocentric. Uh, Jingoistic. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's Amer- All right. Let me put it this way. It's about America. It's an American movie. It is. Um, there's Very quite much. a bit of there's quite a bit of uh, uh, of stuff about America, and then there's uh, some token mentions of other places around the world where you see a brief scene in Iraq with British forces saying things like the Americans are on the case. Bloody hell. Like that's you know jolly good, jolly hip, good. Hip. Hip, hip, cheerio, and then it goes like to Japan and and Russia, and of course all the Russians are sitting around vodka and listening to the radio, and I mean it's just let's just say that the the depiction of other cultures is somewhat stereotypical within the context of this movie, perhaps but stilted. Yeah. Don't don't worry though, everything is, <laughs> so it's it's not just that we have a very, very American-centric film. No one comes out of this looking too great. <laughs> but, but that's, but, that's, more, but that's anyway. more commentary on the quality of the film. Let's yes. get down to some of the science. Yes, so, because this film is filled with science. And technology, and, like we, and some of the stuff, there's one thing in particular. There's a couple things that are really cool. That, yeah, that end up being something that, that's similar to what we use today. And I, I'm actually really impressed. And it was a really cool idea that I don't know who came up with it, but it was uh, a really nifty thing. But the movie opens with a shot of the moon, and you're actually looking at one of the moon landing sites mm-hmm. where you see the you know the footprints on the the regolith on the moon and the placard, yeah, and the uh, the American flag, mm-hmm. and then a shadow comes across the moon, and you hear this terrible rumbling noise because in space everyone can hear you scream. Yeah, see, that's one of the things that happens in this film is that sound does travel in space in this movie, which I uh, can only assume that the ships themselves are miked. <laughs> that somehow they're they're pushing out an atmosphere where sound can actually travel. Yes. Um. Yeah. Because because there's a rumbling on the on the moon, which technically you would not be able to hear unless you had your ear right up against the moon's surface, because there's not any atmosphere on the moon. So there's no way for particles to travel. Remember, sound is a physical. Uh, uh, manifestation. It's actually particles that are banging together, and if there's no atmosphere for the particles to bang together, you wouldn't be able to hear anything. Uh, speaking of which, uh, there there are really no. I mean, uh, this this ship kicks up all kinds of moon dust, mm-hmm. and uh, and yeah, it shakes everything around a whole lot, which wouldn't really be. Yeah, that wouldn't happen either, unless the propulsion system for the ship is somehow something like gravity based, sure. which is possible. That's something it's we should say. Alien tech, we'll we'll give you that one. Right? Yeah, alien technology. We don't know how it works because we are not uh, we're not privy to that information. So <laughs> it's quite possible that they're using some sort of gravity drive, which somehow can affect actual particles. Um, so we'll give them the rumbling. We'll give them at least the movement part. The rumbling part is a little. Yeah, yeah. And, but, and we'll, we'll talk again about the ships in just a minute. I think we're, we're kind of going in chronological order throughout the movie yeah. because that's how we took our notes. Strangely exactly. Enough. Exactly. And, and we should also say that lots of science fiction films have sound in space and it's a dramatic thing. Dramatic right? effect. Yeah. yeah, you can't. Although uh, I do appreciate it when people don't do that. Right. But like Joss like, Whedon like Firefly. In, in Firefly, yeah, but, where you would have a ship explode and you don't hear anything because you wouldn't be able to. Uh, 
that makes sense, but I, I understand why they do it for dramatic effect. It would not be as effective for an audience. So I'm, I give them a pass on that because they're using a, a common trope that's throughout all the science fiction films. Sure. Um, we then get down to the surface of the planet where 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 SETI has suddenly realized and, and it, it is it is pronounced SETI, SETI right yeah. not SETI because one no, of the SETI. characters in the film pronounces it SETI, SETI and yeah, I was no, like, but we just call it SETI excellent cool it's, it's um, the search for extraterrestrial intelligence now this is a real organization mm-hmm. and they use radio telescopes to search out radio signals from other places in the galaxy to see if there's anything broadcasting out there but by radio signals we don't necessarily mean audio like audible Range, yeah, it might be. Radio it might be. Well, just like just like our Wi-Fi is a kind of radio transmission, uh, it may be that it's just a series of frequencies that we pick up that end up looking like it's some form of communication. It wouldn't necessarily be like you beeps know, and boops and or listening to 1950s rock or anything. <laughs> um, you might be able to translate that into some sort of audible sound, but it wouldn't necessarily sound like anything. So, uh, yeah, yeah. And w- which is interesting to me because in the SETI headquarters, they do have a scientist who who goes like, I'm hearing beeps and boops, literal audio beeps and boops right. coming through this headset. And that means something. Right. So so uh, so clearly SETI in this in this little fractured universe has um, uh, translated all of their radio frequencies into an audible signal right, so that right. technicians can. And and to be clear, SETI actually, you know, when they're looking for these radio signals, one of the things you have to keep in mind is there's a lot of stuff out there that can create a radio signal that isn't intelligent. It's it's just it's a natural phenomenon. It's Basically, like, space creates yeah. radio signals. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I mean, objects within space, anything with 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 gravity uh, or with light, you can is- have. You can have the potential for that. You can have anything like uh, quasars, things like that, that create these radio signals. So what SETI has to do is not only look for uh, the presence of radio signals, but then to Filter actually through. Yeah, to make sure that that's m- some sort of meaningful communication as opposed to just random noise. Well, in this case, they figure out, hey, there's something up there and they see that there's a through through some form of thermal imaging they see a gigantic spaceship now later on in the movie we discover that radar does not work on these spaceships so radar that's one that's i guess the excuse of why the the spaceship was not detected until after it was Right there at the moon. Already, yeah, in, but, the, in, but, the, in Earth's orbit. But thermal imaging works. So in other words, there's no cloaking device here. There's nothing that's that's uh, keeping it invisible to us from our, our vision. Other, sure. Now, we can't get them by radar, but we could see them. Now, this ship, this, the mothership, because this is before it has let out any other smaller ships, is huge. According to the movie, it is 550 kilometers in diameter, which is about 342 miles that's just under half the size of Texas at its widest point. And uh, and it says that it's about a quarter of the mass of the moon. Um, yeah, all which of this meaning that huge. It, it's very, very big. And we would be able to see it if not even without radar with our naked eye, like looking up at the sky, we would go, oh, what? Yeah, you'd be, at least be able to see the light from this thing, if nothing else. I mean, the sunlight reflecting off of it. But but Maybe. with telescopes, we'd be able to see it even further away. Sure. And, and possibly... I, you know, I'll, may, maybe the shields, because it is revealed that the ship has some kind of shielding mechanism, um, which which blocks, you know, torpedoes. Right. Um, yeah. But maybe maybe it also blocks visual data. I don't know. I mean, it, then it would, the question would be, why do they bother to reveal themselves at all? 
because if it if it dramatic effect. <laughs> It's like a villain That's, with a cloak. That, that only makes sense within the context of a movie. Within when you step outside of that and you look at no, it. No, come on, come on. If you were going to destroy a planet, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you want to have a dramatic entrance? I have learned my lesson. <laughs> I am no longer revealing my egomaniacal plans to the hero before I set them in motion. I, I you know, fool I don't me once. You at all. Fool me once, shame on you. <laughs> Fool me 478 times, shame on me. All right, not again. 479, it's going down. Okay, but yeah, the, um, the the it does not appear to be invisible. So that's one that's one thing we can point out as being a problem that we would have seen this thing coming toward the Earth even with no instrumentation. We would have yeah, literally just with telescopes. Yeah, we would have seen it well before it ever reached as far as the moon. Uh, that being said, we also don't know if I, I assume this ship must have some sort of super fast propulsion system for yeah, deep yeah, space some kind travel of faster than light. Yeah. Or at least. Yeah. I mean, it would have to be because there are no nearby systems that could support life uh, compared, you know, from our position. Right. There are no planets sure. that are because we do learn that these aliens share a lot in common with us. They breathe oxygen. Mm hmm. They have the same sort of tolerances for heat and cold, and so they have they have some kind of visual cortex that um, that allows them to use very similar uh, computer displays to yeah. ours. Yeah, that's a problem, but we'll get into that. <laughs> but yeah, they 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 have a lot of similarities to humans, which is already a huge coincidence. I mean, you know, there's no there's nothing that says that another I'm, intelligent kind of life would have to be humanoid in shape. That's one that I'm willing to give them, though. That's 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 one. I mean, they're not quite. You know, it's it's not like. Klingons versus humans, and so it's, no, not, it's not quite, quite that close. Not quite that close, but you still have, you know, general, you know, limbs and the know. head and the torso. The universe is a very strange place. Is all I'm saying. I'm, that's one that I'm willing to let slide. Well, for the, for them to be so similar to us and in multiple ways is a huge coincidence when you think about all the variables out there. I mean, when you when you really get down to it, when you talk about our sample size for planets with life on it, that's a one. As a sample size of one, we have one planet that we know of that supports life. As we know it. As we know it. So that's an incredibly small sample size. So, and this is a problem that's throughout science fiction. I'm not just picking on independence. Oh, sure, sure. But, but, you know, we have to extrapolate from what we know. So, I mean, I, I understand that. But for something to be this similar to us, it's pretty phenomenal. Anyway, the fact that they're this similar, uh, means that that well draws a lot of of uh, questions. One of which is that why are they coming here? And they, eventually, it's revealed that they're planning on invading and taking over the planet. That what they do is they go from planet to planet. They consume, use up the resources and yeah, then move on to the next. Yeah, they, they're like, well, this one's done. Let's go on. Which then raises another question, which is that uh, we assume there are a lot of exoplanets out there. Lots of we've we've already found a few. found lots of exoplanets. Yeah. Uh, there are several that we found that are what we within what we call the Goldilocks zone, which is this zone within a uh, distance from the the host star of that planet. If we were in Star Trek, it would be called a Class M planet. Yeah, yeah, yeah meaning that, that of. <laughs> meaning that that it would at least have the potential for supporting life as we know it, based upon its distance from the star. But that's all the you know, and we might know something about the composition of the planet itself, but we wouldn't know enough about it to say that whether there is or isn't life on it. Sure. However. I'm sure that just based upon the huge number we've already started to see in our within our own galaxy, there must be countless planets that fall into this category, which makes you wonder why would you bother going to uh, try and colonize one where the 
residents of that planet might potentially might fight, back. fight back. Well, they, they, I, I would say, I would argue that, that these aliens had to have been watching us long enough to, to understand our language and understand our computer language, uh, which yeah. we'll get to in just a second, and, and furthermore, understand our culture. Um, because when they do send out those little spaceships, they send them not to the most populated regions of the planet, but to the major cultural landmarks, as though they are specifically trying to evoke an emotional response in us. Yeah, as it, though they are the creators of the film. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, so if you're looking at it from a storyteller perspective, you want your <laughs> you want to park your your uh, your spaceship directly over the Empire State State Building or directly over the White House. Uh, or, or the, or the Capitol the capital building, as it was. It, sure. Yeah, exactly. You, you park it directly over some incredibly identifiable landmark because that's very, it's a great visual effect. Uh, if you are an alien, the reason you do it is, I don't know. <laughs> You're already leveling cities. Um, so they, we presume that they have some sort of faster than light drive in order for them to get to where they're going. Right. We don't know that. It's never revealed in the movie where they came from or how they got here. Um, we don't know, uh, they talk about how a, the radio signal, um, is originating from the moon. Uh, that you can't, I don't know how they figured that out. Like how, they, I mean, you could figure out it came from that direction. Oh, right, direction right. The, the I have scientists no study say, say this radio signal is coming, yes. From the moon, from right. The moon. But, you don't, I mean, you could see what direction it was coming from if you were, you know, triangulating from various radio stations and you saw how long it took to get to each one. You could figure out kind of where the, the origin point was. Sure. Eh, distance is a little weird. I mean, because radio signals can come from really far away. Now, granted, the strength of the signal would give you an idea, but uh, that that part it's I got definitely a, yeah, like I stumbled an, an, over an it. equation that's a little bit on the fly. Um, they start using our own satellites to communicate, uh, the, the aliens do. The, the mothership uh, eventually has other ships split off from it. Oh, and one other thing I wanted to mention, you said that it had a quarter of the mass of the moon. In case you're curious, uh, I did the math here. <laughs> it's, so the moon has a mass of 73 zettagrams, uh, which would be if you, tie, if you wrote down the number 7 and then the number 3 and then put 21 zeros after it, that's how many grams of mass the moon has. So this uh, this spaceship has 1.8 zettagrams of mass, uh, and they talk about the possibility of using an ICBM to bring this mothership down before it starts to split off and all the other ships come out from it. Uh, there's no nuclear weapon that could destroy that much mass. It just we we have not created a nuclear weapon that could do that much we? damage. Yeah, there's that's so massive. I mean, we don't not only why why would we, but how could we? <laughs> like, also, how, how how do we know how much mass this thing has? Yeah, I don't know. They, I, I mean, because the they're, they're looking at it from a thermal imaging perspective, yeah, which really just the way tells to measure you the that size is, of it. The is, is a gravitational pull. And, and unless it is, um, unless they've calculated the amount that it's offset the tides or yeah, I don't even then I, even then you wouldn't be able to calculate you know figure out what the mass is that that's a good question I think it was <laughs> I think the answer is they wanted to make sure it looked like it was big this is from my sheet of increasingly incredulous questions yes that I wrote yes down. how is this possible <laughs> well the the mothership has all these large city-sized ships split off from it right and the city-sized ships then come down and hover over the various cities, including like directly over the Empire State Building, directly over the Capitol Building, directly over right. part of L.A., et cetera, sure. et cetera. And um, it, they, 
I think they say at one point it's like 10 to 15 ships. So apparently they never get an accurate count. Um, <laughs> the ships are using our satellite system to communicate with each other. Right. They're bouncing signals off of our satellites, which raises a question. How do they get their tech? Technology to interact with ours. They, they've clearly learned our, our computer programming languages. They must have, because how else? And they must have then designed machines on their their ships that could then interface with our machines. Because otherwise, you you know, yes, you can see that they're broadcasting radio signals, but on a technological level, you wouldn't be able to interact with that unless yours were somehow. Uh, uh, you know, had some sort of adapter, alien to earth adapter, where you could tap into our technology. But they're using our satellite systems to send out a message, uh, which uh, Jeff Goldblum figures out. He does. Well, because he's, he's a really smart guy. Um, well, and but- <laughs> to be fair, though, this was one part of the movie that I found very plausible. Right. He discovers a repeating pattern that's being broadcast over radio signals. Now, you don't have to know what that... Uh, what that translates to in order to notice that there in is a pattern. In order to notice that there is a pattern. And he notices that, uh, that, it's, that it's winding down Yeah, it's something. reducing. Uh-huh. Each time it repeats, it reduces. So he then figures out that this it's is... a countdown. Which is perfectly plausible. Sure. No, no, no. No, that's, that's, that's great. Fine science. Um, yeah, that part, I, I was like, I am all right with this. This makes sense that you would have a repeating pattern that's getting slightly shorter each time, that sounds like a countdown. Yeah. The, the issue that I've got here is that, um, is that it, it shows a couple of our satellites crashing in to the mothership, um, which yeah. means that, A, the mothership is significantly lower in orbit than the moon. Right. Um, or parts of it are, anyway. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and, uh, and, and secondly, just the way that they talk about satellites is not necessarily the way that satellites are talked about. Um, yeah, well, uh, Jeff, Jeff Goldblum mentions uh, transponder channels, <laughs> which is like saying a pizza pie. Like it's it's kind of the same word over again. A it's, transponder is a yeah. yeah. It's really like um, you know, it's essentially the it's techno babble to try and sound like he's doing something effective. There's another thing that happens with the cable station in particular that just drove me crazy. <laughs> Because I was, I, I understand again that was done for effect, for dramatic, effect. but it made no sense. Uh, right. Uh, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So, you've got all these spaceships splitting off. Uh, a satellite hits the spaceship, and there's no visible damage whatsoever. You also don't see well, the force shielded. field, but it's you don't shielded. see the force field at that point. You just see the satellite bang into the uh, spaceship and then go boom. Which uh, does it? Does it do it? I don't remember. Does it do a green boom or an explodey? Boom? I don't. I think it's an explodey boom, as huh. I recall. Now, granted, I should add. This movie is two hours and 20 minutes long, something like that. so long, guys. Yeah, so we took turns watching and then taking breaks and then watching and then playing Borderlands 2 and then watching and then (laughs) desperately trying to find something else to do and then watching. Um, I mean, I watched this movie all the way through in the theater when it came out. I loved this movie as a teenager. Sure. We're going to take a quick break from watching Independence Day and then slagging on it to thank our sponsors. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. 
and you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the Mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta, visiting the scene of the crime, confronting Mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this 100-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. So, uh... We didn't have the various people in uh, American government reacting and trying to figure out what the heck is going on. Uh, the Secretary of Defense wants to blow it out of the sky with an ICBM, even though I just said that... That we do not have one that is that big. Yeah, even though... Maybe it's a secret government program. Yeah. Now, the city-sized ships, once those 
split off. That, those could those would be theoretically. That I would, if you're talking about the size of a city, then you, you could take it down. Yeah, yeah. Maybe you could do enough damage it to it. You could do enough damage to it where it, I, I seriously think it wouldn't be able to maintain flight. I mean, nuclear weapons are depending pretty on your your engine power source, which we right. still haven't. Determined. And yeah, yeah we because, don't know because it. these things are city-sized and they are hovering noiselessly and um, and effortlessly. Like 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 they are not creating any um, any kind of ripples in right. the space-time continuum as we know it right. so above you, these cities. You've got you've got this ship that's parked over your city, but there, it's not pushing like a down. Plane just hanging. Yeah, it's not it's not pushing down in any way that would make you like if you stepped outside you wouldn't suddenly feel like some weird force pressing down on you. Right. There's no people, breeze, there's no yeah. nothing. So, we don't know how they're hanging in the air like that. Alien um, technology, I'll give it to them. Yeah, it might as well be magic. Uh so we don't know what's going on on that case. Uh we've got the whole um oval office reaction. One of my favorite little moments in this is there's a point where a person brings in a silver briefcase to show the president something? Oh, yeah, yeah. And opens it up and there's like a little, it's not even a laptop. It's, it's like just a, a screen. It's just a little screen. Yeah, it's a yeah. screen uh, with a little 1996 the, iPad. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, it's supposed to show a readout, a radar readout of the ships. I don't know why radar's working now. Um, there's no explanation for why the radar readout works as opposed to, because half the time radar is not working and the other half the time they talk about a radar readout. Uh, don't know. Maybe it's just that the aliens keep forgetting to turn the stealth button on. Um, because these ships are not designed... Like, if you've listened to our podcast about stealth technology, you know that a part of the way that stealth technology works is just based on the actual physical design of the vehicles. They have these weird angular... Uh, 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 designs to them, and that the makes that makes stuff bounce off of them at, at at awkward angles, so that you can't receive the signals. Exactly, exactly. But these ships are just gigantic flying saucers, so big flat surfaces that radar could easily bounce off of. They have to be able to absorb shielding, it. shielding, or if, if if we're talking about those gravitational drives or something like that. Lauren, I, don't know. I never knew you were an alien apologist. <laughs> Um, but yeah, so so don't know why the radar sometimes works and sometimes doesn't. But it's still kind of interesting here. Uh, there's also when the ships are moving into position over the cities, there's this weird sheath of fire that's all around them. And I was wondering if that was supposed to be the representation of these ships entering the, the Earth's atmosphere. atmosphere. That's what I assumed. But they don't seem to be moving very quickly. So it's almost like they have a very controlled descent into Earth's atmosphere. So they wouldn't, you know, the the whole heat and fire stuff would only make sense if they were coming in at an incredible speed. Um, and they're creating this amazing amount of pressure as they're coming in. And that's what builds up all this heat. Maybe they have a fine magnesium powder that's operating their shielding system that's just lighting on fire as they, I don't know if that's a science fact. Maybe this is just the, the equivalent of painting flames on your hot rod. <laughs> this is wicked cool, guys. Let's turn the flames on. You know, that's what I'm thinking. Well, you know what? We got a lot more to say about this movie. But before we do, let's take a quick break to thank our sponsor, Audible. Audible.com is the leading provider of downloadable digital audiobooks and spoken word entertainment. Audible has over 100,000 titles to choose from to be downloaded to your iPod or MP3 player. Go to audiblepodcast.com slash techstuff to get a free audiobook download of your choice when you sign up today. And since we're talking about science fiction today, um, one good suggestion would be War of the Worlds. They have several different versions at Audible, including one read by Orson Frickin' Wells. So go check that out. Okay, so we've got the ships 
they're over the various cities. We've got they. Everyone's freaking out. Uh, no one knows exactly what's going on yet. Jeff Goldblum's di- discovered the signal, uh, and he he fa- figures out that it's probably some sort of coordinated attack. This raises a question in my mind that's more of a plot question and less of a technology question, which is. I don't understand why the attack needs to be incredibly coordinated, because as is demonstrated throughout the film, these aliens have amazing technology that our technology just cannot stand up to. Uh-huh. Like nothing we have puts a dent. So, in so what it doesn't. It doesn't really matter if they're going to blow us up simultaneously or at a slight lag. Right. Right. Why? Because why, they're still blowing us why up. Why even worry about targeting the largest cities first, unless it's just to get as many people dead as possible, which could just be an efficiency thing. In which case, all right, I can get that. They're trying to kill as many people in as little time as possible because their ultimate goal is to invade the planet. And this way they'd wipe out, you know, the major centers of population. They're clearly just just Bond villains, really, at heart. They're, they're again, they're doing it for dramatic effect. Right. They wanted to give one of our scientists something to latch on to. Yeah, well, in I, order to make us feel like we have a fighting chance. I think I think the I think the wiping out as many people as possible is as much sense as I can make of it. But it, I mean, it does make sense in a way. If you're if you're talking about clearing out an area so that you can then come in and 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 reap all the benefits, sure. Then I understand. Like, all right, well, you want to to do that, you need to hit before everyone realizes what's up, because then they're just going to scatter like like cockroaches, and then you have to hunt them all down and squish them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, this is this is also about when uh, when. Our our satellites, like all of our satellite communications, start kind of breaking up a little bit in yeah. this weird static pattern, which I'm not sure is how satellites work. No, if um, satellites work well. Well, they if, do if, say if some that were being destroyed, and some of the some of the capacity of the satellite was being used to transmit this alien signal. I I think that the signal would just go out. I don't yeah. think it would be static. Anything that was destroyed, obviously, the signal would go out. The uh, there you know having this idea of an alien signal underlying our own signals is interesting. Uh, it, depending upon the bandwidth of the satellite, I could actually see it working in a way where it means that our signals are actually weaker, but I don't think it would come across exactly the way it did in the movie. Sure. Uh, there's one point, uh, you know, Jeff Gold- Goldblum's character, the brilliant scientist guy who's now essentially just working for a cable company, a cable provider, uh, there's one point where he's talking with his uh, his comedic sidekick character, who is later on uh, uh, obliterated, spoiler alert, um, <laughs> Harvey Firestein, uh, where he's chatting with him, and then suddenly a, a White House announcement comes on the screens. And, and and this wall of screens that had previously been picking up broadcasts from all different channels. Yeah, yeah. So you think of a like just a wall of television screens, and each television screen is showing a different channel, and now they're all showing the White House thing. But some of them, like groups of nine screens, become one big display. So, you know, you're talking. they're the Power Rangers or something, and, and they're all just, just building up together. I think to- of Voltron. Voltron, but, sorry. Right. That's era. <laughs> but no, yeah, it, the, this idea that, you know, the, if you have a block of nine screens, the upper left screen is the upper left corner of the full picture. How does that happen? Like, how would you, how would Vol- you? Voltron. Would that mean like Channel 32 is only showing the upper left corner of a, <laughs> a the, White House thing? The alien, uh, the alien disruption in our in our communication signal is causing our televisions to start acting like Voltron. Okay, and I I completely dismiss your your <laughs> apologetic response. Yeah, this is one of those things where I just thought it was ridiculous, where you have all these disconnected screens suddenly showing a unified display. It just, I mean, it was clearly there for dramatic effect, but it doesn't make any sense. The only way that works is 
is if you have pre-recorded it and programmed out the screens to show exactly what you want when you want it. It doesn't happen over a live broadcast where suddenly nine screens gain sentience and all work together <laughs> to bring together the it's president's unlikely. words. Yeah. yeah. Uh, the, the Jeff Goldblum decides he has to go to D.C. to find his ex-wife who now works at the White House. And also marginally helps save the planet. Right. So, uh, yeah, that's in the process. Uh, so he goes with his dad uh, and he and his dad go down to D.C. because Jeff Goldblum's character doesn't drive a car. So he rides with his dad who does, who drives very slowly. To comedic effect, and they arrive at D.C., and then he, he quote, triangulates the position of his wife through her cell phone use, which is cell, not... Cell phones in this period were Fox Mulder's cell phone. Yeah. I mean, they were bricks. They were rare, too. Not everyone had them, but, yeah. uh, but triangulating is probably not the right word here. You could triangulate someone's position using uh, someone who's using a cell phone. You could triangulate it, particularly if you're the cell phone company, but more likely what he was doing was... Uh, also, using, at the time, didn't they didn't they kind of purposefully scramble a lot of that? Where couldn't you not really use GPS? I, well, I, GP, I GPS a, GPS does that's not even that's not even a thing. Okay. Well, I mean GPS is a thing, but not on any civilian cell phone personal level. Not sure. in 1996. So you could do it just by the cell phone signal. You know, the cell phone's sending out radio signals from okay. the phone because she's on the phone at the time, mm-hmm. and the idea is that what he's doing is detecting the radio signal from her phone, and then figuring out where she is within the context. Of the White House. Uh, he couldn't really triangulate. I mean, to triangulate, you need three points. That's kind of the whole idea of triangulation. You need these three sides, and you have to be able to know the different angles between you and a cup. You need to know at least the distance between you and one other point, and at least the measurement of two angles for you to be able to determine the position of whatever it is point. you're looking for. Yeah. yeah. And he obviously doesn't have all that information. What he was really doing was a, a a kind of localization through multilateral radio signals, which is possible, but is not terribly precise. So in other words, he'd be able to say, she's in the White House, which they already <laughs> knew. But anyway, again, movie logic. Um, we have the whole uh, 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 bit of where they're at, the ships actually start to unleash their attack. So at this point, our various heroes have all started to make their way out of the cities, otherwise the movie's over really quickly. Dead and, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And the spaceships start to beam down energy into the cities to wipe them out. We don't know what kind of energy it's it is. It's some kind of energy weapon. It's a, it's kind of a green glowing laser stuff that moves yeah. uh, slower than light speed. Right. So so it's kind of like our uh, podcast about plasma, plasma. weapons. Sure. You know, it's similar to that. But we figure, all right, so the slowing down, obviously, that's for, for again, dramatic effect. Because if it was going at light speed, it would just be, boo, and you're like, wow. Um, <laughs> this, this was more, you know, intimidating and frightening, but so let's just assume it's some form of laser. There could even be plasmification going on because if the laser is powerful enough, it could actually plasmify the, the atmosphere. Yeah, the atmosphere around the laser. And then you see this, this explosion from the focal point moving outward and it just keeps rolling out. Like a, like a ripple effect, like yeah. a pond. Yeah, exactly. Like if you were to throw a rock into a pond and you watch those ripples, that's exactly what this looks like, except it's just the one ripple, right? It's not like a, it's not like a su- it's sequence not a, of them. Sure. So you see this one ripple moving outward of explosiveness, uh, and it never seems to, um, to, to disperse until it gets to like the edge of the city. It just keeps going outward, which, uh, the blast only happens once. Like it shoots down once at whatever 
monument it happens to be parked over because we've already established that's what they do. That's what they do. The aliens are kind of they uh, they're kind of jerks. <laughs> they're a bunch of jerk faces. Not only are they destroying our cities, but they have to first hit whatever like uh, iconic building or structure is there. They're like, not only we're going to kill you, we're going to blow up your stuff. Like the stuff you like. The stuff you like. The stuff that's on your postcards. That's what we're blowing up. Um, cause it makes really good Don't movie they, posters. They've, they've been, they've been watching, watching our, our communication signals. Yeah, they probably actually had already seen Emmerich's future films before he had even made them, and they said that's a good idea. So, uh, cause, I mean, if they're going faster than light, that means they've got some time travel stuff going on too. Anyway, this, this, uh, this explosion that moves outward, there's, the scientific problem I have with this is that, the energy doesn't seem to disperse. Like they, they shoot the blast down once and then the blast turns off and then you just see the, the, ex, the spreading explosion and it never seems to be losing energy. But in order for this to really work, they'd have to constantly be pouring energy into it because, you know, otherwise it would just disperse outward. Heat does not stay in a ripple effect. Um, maybe, maybe only that initial blast is, uh, is within the visible spectrum and the rest is using some of that graviton technology that they clearly have to create some kind of, uh, like, like magnetic gra- gravitational ring that so they're, they're expands using, out. You know what? If you're talking about plasma, that works. I will, I will grant you that because plasma will respond to magnetic fields. So, um, Okay, I, I retract my objection. If that's possibly what happened, then that's fine. So uh, I did some math here where I was trying to determine how many people would have theoretically died as a result of these attacks. All right. So assuming that the ships were able to hit most of the major cities in the world, and really at first they're, they're hitting like 10 or 15 of them, uh, and then they move on to hit smaller cities like Atlanta. Atlanta's in round two, so we don't get off scot-free in this one. Um, so in 1996, the world had approximately 5.8 billion people. We've got quite a few more since then, but 5.8 billion people in 1996. So I assumed that about 40% of the world's population were in cities. Now, that's a rough assumption. In 1950, it was around 30%. And I think it was 2008 when we finally hit 50% population in urban environments. So between 1950 and 2008, I'm saying... 40%. So 40% of the world's population in cities, that's about 2.3 billion people total. And then I made a further assumption. I said, all right, a lot of people tried to evacuate. So let's say that 50% of them got out of the city and they're safe, and the other 50% are still within the city when the these attacks happen. Uh, that means that you've got about 1.16 billion people Left, left behind in, left the behind in those cities. So then I said, all right, let's assume a 70% fatality rate, meaning that 30% of the population is able to find some place where they're able to hunker down and survive. They're, they're in a, they, bomb, they a bomb shelter, shelter. or, or they're a, a helpful alleyway if you happen to be Will Smith's love interest. Uh, thank goodness the dog lives. Um, by the way, this movie, not so subtle with its emotional manipulation. They use everything, children. Uh, they use dogs. Uh, they use the wonderful trope of character who has been terribly injured, but not so badly that they can't have that one last tender Conversation. moment. Conversation, yeah. Thank you, President Laura. Oh, man. I, mm, that's, that's the scene I hate the most in this movie, and that's saying something. But anyway, <laughs> with a 70% fatality rate, I figure that about 812 million people die as a result of, the, of, of, this, uh, of this attack. So that's a conservative estimate. 
Then we've got the thing about the alien shields, which we assume are probably some form of magnetic or maybe even gravity drive. Uh, we don't really know that. We don't know about the what the energy weapons really are. Right, right. All right, so that, that brings us to this whole idea of uh, the Roswell slash Area 51 part of the movie. Uh, right, right, because because uh, what happens is they um you know all the cities start start being blowed up and yeah. uh and and the president and a bunch of other military persona uh head off to Area 51. Yeah, after where uh, the secret base after is Jeff, located underground. Right, Jeff Goldblum's dad says, "Hey you guys, you knew about this ever since the thing in Roswell and then you hid it in Area 51." And the president says, "No, no, 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 no." That's, that's just a rumor. It's that's urban a legend. It's not it not real. Anything. And then the Secretary of Defense is like, well, actually, cut to yeah. But here's the thing. First of all, the president in this in this sequence appears to be unaware of the actual existence of Area 51, which is an actual base. It's an actual base. Although the the military didn't really refer to it as Area 51 beyond some designations on a map. And the reason it was called Area 51 is because of its proximity to a nuclear testing range where they had divided up the range into different areas. Uh, it was more known as Groom Lake, which was a dry lake bed in Nevada. And it really is a real place, uh, but it was used to test experimental and secret aircraft. Right. So uh, things like spy planes that were being tested by the Air Force were that was the testing ground, and it was meant to be this secret area so that they could do this test without revealing to the world, "Hey, this is what we're working on." Um, but it doesn't actually have any connection to Roswell, and in fact, Roswell, New Mexico, and Groom Lake, Nevada, are not close to each other. Although there there are theorists who have said that uh, that that any potential crash landings at Roswell were brought to a secret underground base at Area Fifty One. Right, essentially shipped across state lines to go to this secret underground base. Uh, but uh, you know the the Roswell event, by the way, in case you're not familiar with that. This is an event that happened uh, in the, I think it was in the 50s, where uh, a, a resident of New Mexico... 1947. 1947, thank you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was a little earlier than I was thinking. So in 1947, a, a resident of uh, uh, essentially Roswell, New Mexico, came across this weird stuff. Uh, it was this shiny stuff that had um, was in a little pile on the ground. And for a while, people were assuming that it was some form of UFO uh, from outer space that had crash-landed on the Earth. Later on, much later on, the military said that what this was was part of Operation Mogul, which was a uh, spy balloon uh, initiative. It was testing out using balloons as spy vehicles to, to get information and radio it back to some other place. And uh, there are plenty of conspiracy theorists who don't accept that, who'd say that that's not... That's not the right answer. Although, you know, it, the military for a while was very much quiet about what this actually was. But then it was because it was a spy program. So you don't really want to let everyone know. Yeah, it was during the Cold War. You know, people were trying to keep things under wraps. So Yeah, yeah. You know, we've seen in recent events how people don't want spy information to get out to the general public. But that's an entirely different podcast that we do plan on recording. Yes. But we want to have enough time to be able to really cover that in great detail. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just look up NSA and PRISM, and that'll be uh, just a little preview for a future episode of Tech Stuff. Anyway, in this film, they take the assumption that the space uh, ship crash in Roswell was, in fact, an alien spaceship. It was not some balloon. 
that it was in fact one of these alien yes. spaceships. And it was the, there are three levels of spaceship in Independence Day. There is the mothership, which is the 550 kilometer diameter ship hanging out by the moon. Yes. There are the city sized ships that hover directly over a city, thus making it easy to tell how big they are because you just look at it and say that's the size of the city. Uh, not terribly precise, but, you know, gets the point across. Then you have the fighter ships. These are like the tiny little ones that are kind of a, uh, similar to jet fighters here on Earth. That's kind of their purpose, at least in the film. That's what it seems to be. So it was one of those smaller ones that had apparently crashed in Roswell, and then they move the ship and its inhabitants, who two of whom are dead, and the third one who dies a few days later, back over to Area 51 in Nevada. Underground. So... The president is alerted that, in fact, all of this stuff actually did happen. Mm-hmm. And he says, well, why wasn't I told? And they, they'd say, plausible deniability. So that if anyone asked you, you would honestly say that it doesn't exist. Because as far as you know, it doesn't. Although, to be fair, the, the, the way that security clearances work, just because someone has the highest possible security clearance, does that, it's, it's, it's um, what's the word I'm looking for? Compartmentalized. Yes, it is very much compartmentalized. So just because someone has got the... Highest levels of security clearance doesn't mean that they actually have all the information. Right. Uh, you still have to go through all the different channels to get it. Anyway, uh, so they go to Area 51 where they find a state-of-the-art scientific lab where uh, people are top men, are working on <laughs> on determining what AKA the heck... A.K.A. Nerds, nerds, A.K.A. Brent Spiner. Brent Spiner with yeah. long gray hair and glasses uh, and and coming across as like the the typical science geek character yeah, uh, with no or limited social, social skills. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, so anyway, he, he shows off the ship, which they said has st- suddenly become active once the uh, the other ships have come into uh, the the proximity of Earth, and that's actually really cool. The, yeah, this, this concept of of the ships having some kind of um... mesh network. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This this is one of those things where I think Independence Day really got it right to the point where. This is a really cool idea. It's this idea of this entire force, this this spaceship force that is working on some form of what I presume is radio frequency, where it's, they are communicating all with each other so that there can be a truly coordinated effort on the part of the entire force. So this includes everything from power to communications. So when the, the fleet gets within the right range of Earth, this ship starts to react. And it, we have mesh networks now. Back in 1996, we really didn't have mesh networks the way we do now. But now we've got networks where you can have uh, elements of that network join and drop out uh, spontaneously throughout a, an entire you know period of time, whatever that period of time you want to be. Like uh, you know, you can think of a, a mesh network from everything from a, a personal sized mesh network. So you're talking about like Bluetooth devices that can l- seamlessly link in and link out of it to city-wide mesh networks if you really wanted to. We talk about smart cars and this idea of a smart grid where the cars can kind of maneuver through a city autonomously. Mm -hmm. That's essentially a mesh network where every single car is a part of it. So this is actually an idea that I thought was ahead of its time and made sense. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, kudos to them for coming up with this because it, it really was a cool idea that we're actually seeing put into place in a different implementation, obviously, we haven't invaded any alien planets as far as I'm aware, but we have started to use this kind of approach. 
Right, right, yeah. Although while while we're on the topic of grids, I, I did want to kind of point out that no one ever really talks about the fact that if you destroy this many major metropolitan areas, that the electrical grid would probably be not toast. Not good. Yeah, no, that is true. We don't know where everyone's getting their power at yeah, this point. Yeah, and and you can assume that Area Fifty One would have its own generators. But right, right, right. Yeah, and but and some of these uh, army bases, I suppose, have access to power from other places. <laughs> I mean, most most of these military bases, I suspect, do not have their own power generating facilities. We'll be right back talking more about Independence Day, but first, let's take another quick break. Running a business is no cakewalk. There is a ton to keep track of. Employees to keep happy, spending to control, travel to plan, and on top of it all, nobody knows exactly what the future holds. Your finance team always has to be ready to change. But with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices. And that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is, experience. And you can finally say goodbye to the costly mistakes and risks that come from manual work and spreadsheets. So, while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. Something that makes me crazy is when people say, well, I had this career before, but it was a waste. And that's where the perspective shift comes, that it's not a waste that everything you've done has built you to where you are now. This is She Pivots, the podcast where we explore the inspiring pivots women have made and dig deeper into the personal reasons behind them. Join me, Emily Tish sussman every Wednesday on She Pivots as I sit down with inspiring women like Misty Copeland, Brooke Shields, Vanessa Hudgens, and so many more. We dive into how these women made their pivot and their mindset shifts that happened as a result. It's a podcast about women, their stories, and how their pivot became their success. Listen to She Pivots on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Every family has skeletons in their closet. Mine certainly does. Ones that go back a hundred years and reach thousands of miles back to our hometown in Sicily. Ever since I can remember, my relatives told the story of my great-great-grandmother who was killed by the Mafia. I'm Joe Piazza, and in my new podcast, I'm taking on a generational vendetta 
visiting the scene of the crime, confronting mafia experts, tracking down Italian officials, and even consulting mediums to set the record straight on my great-great-grandmother's mysterious disappearance. And in between the fact-finding missions, I'll be drinking a lot of wine and eating all of the pasta. Come to Italy with me to solve this hundred-year-old murder mystery. Listen to The Sicilian Inheritance on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We also know that global communications are down, uh, so they get around that by using telegraph wires. Uh-huh. Morse code. And they use Morse code. Uh, I assume they're using Morse code simply because the telegraph wires are the most reliable means of communicating rather than some way of masking the communication from aliens. Oh, I, I don't, it seems like a little bit of both, which confuses me on, on A, you're, you're still conveying information electrically yeah. and transcontinentally um, is a really long, I mean, I don't know, I, I just, I find it implausible that that wire would have survived. It's Well, if it's all underwater, if it's under the ocean, then it is possible that the, that, at least some of the telegraph wires have have managed to survive. Like at least some communication lines have survived. The transatlantic lines, actually, anything that is under the ocean, I have no problem believing that that survived. Whether it survived enough nodes so that you could have a, a dedicated connection, but that's one of the good things about the internet, and and it's something that I think we easily look over. It's the idea that the way that the transmission protocols were designed for the internet means that if you were to lose a large part of the internet information could still pass through the work yeah because yeah. it can it can dynamically route across different networks now telegraphs are, that's different right that's not that's not divided up into packets of information like an email is it's sent as a direct signal um but i assume that they weren't really trying to mask their communications <laughs> if they were morse code's not that Difficult to crack? Yeah, it's just a code. All it is is replacing letters with particular, uh, uh, a particular dash and dot combination. And certainly so, if these aliens can, can crack our, our satellite communication systems, then they could definitely they easily can crack Morse. Morse code, especially if, if they've had any contact with humans where they understand the concept. Cause they do, they do give you that, that feeling that whenever an alien makes telepathic Contact with a human, which we see in this Area 51 scene. Uh, Brent Spiner, uh, he gets his uh, his brain all taken over, and the mm-hmm. president does too, briefly, uh, by uh, a telepathic alien. That knowledge is shared. That the the person who has the telepathic communication with the alien learns things about the alien's brain, and the alien learns things about the human's brain. So just that alone i mean even if the even if the person that they control doesn't understand morse code like they don't know morse code they would probably at least have heard what morse code is right which means the aliens would be like all right this is a code where they've replaced letters with this i know what the letters are let's just figure this out and it wouldn't take you long at all i mean once you know the basic rules of language decoding something that's a simple replacement cipher very easy so that's why i'm saying i don't think it was meant to mask the communication so much as just be a way of People communicating across vast distances once the other lines had been cut. I'm I'm wondering I'm I'm wondering right now how the psychic communication part happens, which yeah. is which is straying a little bit from technology. I understand. Well, but, it's science uh, though. It but fits. It, but it, is, it is science, and 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 that's you know because if if you can communicate more or less telepathically, and I'm assuming electrically, due to the way that um that that these aliens' brains seem to have an effect on 
um, memory, muscle systems, and and furthermore, um, electrical systems in the nearby area. It, it, it's almost like they send out kind of an EMP a couple of times. Yeah. And um, yeah, they, well, and uh, well, you would think that anything that would require manipulation of thought would have to work on an electrical basis at least at some point because when you get down to the cellular level well and also Brent Spiner talks yeah from the alien's point of view so yeah. so it's, it's he becomes a data uh, puppet yeah. <laughs> right, you're, right. you're actually making puppet motions with your hands I am I am yeah no so. no no it made perfect sense yeah uh, uh, and and yeah at that point it's it, it, your muscular systems are electrical so yeah so you don't you, there's no explanation of how this telepathic uh, uh, Link and why happens. they need to use our satellites if they're telepathic. Right, yeah. If they are telepathic, unless it's the telepathy only works over short distances. But this is Those all... Those gravity drives <laughs> must get in the way yeah, exactly. of the telepathic like, signals. Like, yeah. All right, guys, get any communication you want out of the way now, because we're about to start moving, and you know there's no talking once we get moving. <laughs> um, yeah, because they don't, they don't have any mouths. They cannot speak, but they do communicate telepathically. Uh, we don't understand much of that, but then... The movie is told from the point of view of the human protagonists. Of and the humans are at a disadvantage because they know very little in general about the aliens. So I'm even willing to give them a bit of a pass on this, saying that the alien physiology and the telepathy are... It's just beyond our understanding. It's beyond our understanding. Okay. And we call it telepathy because we don't have a word, a word. for whatever yeah. it is they're okay. using. No, that's all right. Um, but I agree with you. And, first of, and also... Assuming that there's going to be any kind of, of compatibility between alien physiology and human physiology where this telepathy would work across species is a huge leap. I mean, you know, these are two species that don't have any connection to one another at all biologically, as far as we know. So the ability for telepathy to work across species is a pretty big jump. I just I just had the earnest, I apologize for this, I just had the earnest thought, well, it worked really well in Slither. Moving forward, biomechanical suits. So these aliens are actually, uh, the, the when you first see them, they're these big, giant, nasty-looking critters. But it turns out that the big, giant, nasty-looking critter is actually a shell for a smaller, nasty-looking critter inside <laughs> of it. And that the, the shell is a biomechanical suit. This is another thing I thought was really super cool. Yeah, yeah. You know, we've got a lot of uh, work in exoskeletons here today on Earth. Now, these exoskeletons are mechanical and electronic. They're not biomechanical. Right. But then we're also seeing uh, things like uh, robotic limbs that are designed to mimic the way our biological limb would work. And that's really awesome. Again, still it's mechanical. It's not biomechanical. But we're slowly moving toward what could possibly be a biomechanical future where perhaps uh, someone who has to have a limb amputated receives something that's more akin to a biomechanical arm as opposed to just a, a mechanical. mechanical one right. or, or electronic one. So uh, I thought that that was really neat. I did think that the design was weird, specifically the feet. Yeah, they, uh, have, they have they have these tentacles that are kind of curled under like sloth toes, and I, I uh, think they, they they look they look like they are um like they're rigid to me. So to me, they look like not like tentacles, but like these toes that are curled around. I think that was a that was a limitation of the puppet that was being used of okay. the practical effect. So you think that I, I think I think that it was supposed to be the same wiggly tentacle that we saw being wiggly and pneumatic earlier. Also, I'm, totally I'm so sad making... that you guys can't see this. <laughs> Because when Lauren when Lauren demonstrates wiggly tentacles, she's she's looking a bit like a frantic Muppet. 
Um, <laughs> to be fair, I usually look a bit like a frantic Muppet, I think. Yeah, but, uh, we'll have to shoot the video version of this podcast at some point so we can see the, the tentacle. We'll both do our own version. Google it, Glass is different. coming. It's going to happen. That is. Google Glass is coming. I'll be getting my co- my pair in a couple of days. Um yeah, but anyway, I just thought that the feet were weird. But if they were supposed to be tentacles that are actually flexible, that makes more sense to me. But if they were supposed to be these rigid, weird, curled, backward toe things, that's not the best uh, foundation for your bipedal suit. Maybe on their planet, the gravity is different. So it's like that C.S. Lewis uh, C.S. Lewis novel. Where Ma- they maybe they just all hang upside down from trees and they have to hook their toes onto the tree limbs in order to be able to move. And, and so they're not normally walking on ground. I don't know. <laughs> um, so then the next note I have actually involves a plot point. In a this, plot point? Yeah, not, not just the science. We had those. Yeah. Here's, <laughs> yes. The movie does have a plot. <laughs> Um, but uh, the president's wife is injured in a, a helicopter crash. The president's wife, of course, being played by President Laura from Battlestar Galactica. Right. So uh, the president's wife is uh, injured uh, critically, but she has... But in specifically. Yeah, yeah. There's, it's very vague. There's internal bleeding. That's all we know. She's, she's suffered the internal bleeding injury, and the duration of which is it will let her live just long enough for her to have that to tender have a moment. poignant conversation yeah, with, with her, her husband. husband just before passing away. And then, of course, you get the literal daughter saying, is mommy sleeping? And the president saying, yes, she is. And then the sad moment. Like, again, not a subtle movie is Independence Day. Uh, they like to take emotion and whack you right upside the head with it in a very clumsy, ham-fisted manner. Kind of similar to the way that they, they depict America and all of the world. <laughs> like, it's just, a, it's, a, it's a very simple, simple representation of emotion and politics. Um, now we get into the part of the movie that everyone remembers. Whenever anyone has a discussion about Independence Day and science and technology, this is the part that everyone brings up. Which uh, is, right, right. Because this, the entire plot hinges upon Jeff Goldblum's characters. I, we keep saying Jeff Goldblum as though he was actually there. Um, <laughs> I was not paying that much attention, I have to say. Um, uh, his, his concept is, okay, so we can't destroy these ships because they're shielded. Yeah. Um, but I can program a virus on my Mac. Yeah. And if we can get that virus into the ships, then we can take down the shields and then blow the ships up. Yeah, now this is a this is just a, a mostly due to a gross misunderstanding of what exactly a computer virus is. So in this movie, a computer I think virus. I they were using a word that it's, it's, you keep using that word. I don't know if, <laughs> if think it means, means what you think it means. <laughs> yeah, if we did an episode about Princess Bride, it'd be much shorter. But it would just be us quoting is all it would be. Um, you can do that with your friends. I yeah. do it with my friends all the time. But yeah, the the in this film, a computer virus is essentially saying this will turn the shields off. That's all this computer virus does. So it's really more like a command, sending a command to... To like the shield thing, switch that to the off position and keep it off for as long as you possibly can. But they call it a computer virus. Now, typically, computer viruses do one of a few things. Your very basic computer worm, the the old style computer virus that was really just meant to cause as much mischief as possible, was a self replicating piece of code that, if you were to execute it, would start to copy itself and uh, to whatever medium you were using. So, like a hard drive, so it would copy itself to your hard drive, filling up your hard drive space and making your computer essentially unusable. Also, your your computer's memory, so it just kind of bricks your computer. Mm-hmm. 
then there were the kinds that would try to wipe all the data off, you know, just essentially reformat your computer. Then there were the kinds that were designed to uh, to take advantage of a vulnerability in whatever operating system you were using so that someone could get access to your machine, administrative-level access to your yeah, machine. Yeah, e- either lock you out and grant someone else access or simply grant someone else access. Right, yeah. So you, the whole backdoor uh, access thing where you can get access to another person's machine, you might not you might not lock them out at all so that they seem to think that everything's working fine. They don't. To them, it doesn't seem to be any different. It might be it's a little a slower. invisible parasite kind yeah. of issue. But then someone else is, is running the game and trying to use your computer to do various things. Um, so the, those are your basic types of malware. I mean, there are other kinds as well. There are phishing scams, things that do key logging to try and figure out what it is that you're typing. But that's kind of the basics for computer viruses. They're not necessarily uh, something that, you know, does very specific functions. So here here are the multiple problems I have here. <laughs> Okay. One one is that you have an alien computer system and a human computer system that are at all compatible. Just as biology being compatible is really implausible, computer systems is incredibly implausible. And and again, I'm almost willing to give them a pass on the aliens studying us enough to have figured out our satellite communication systems. Um, because you know, I I don't know how long they've been studying us. That's that's sure, and they're aliens. That's fine. But, yeah, they've, but, but, they've, at least since 1947, right? But if you're just watching Jeff Goldblum. If, yeah. if it's just one dude over the course of like a day. Yeah, and and the idea, even if they've been studying the alien technology aboard this ship, I doubt that they had had any luck in act. You know, clearly they said that the the ship had not been operational at all until a couple of days, like since the uh, since the invasion had came started. Back in. Right, right. So they didn't didn't have any access to the computer system there. There's no reason their computer systems would run on the same sort of binary system that we use. Now, the fact that our system uses this particular form of computer science is because that's what was working for us. But there's no guarantee that any other society would develop computers the same way we did. So there's no and and even if they did, there's no guarantee that there would be an easy way to interface one system with another. How do you connect a an Earth based computer so that you can actually send a virus to a an alien technology. This is this, this is, is 1996. They didn't even have Bluetooth. So, <laughs> yeah. You know, yeah, yeah. They're they're not they're not like you know. It appears that you just have to get close enough and you can magically do it. But which would be like Bluetooth. But <laughs> but I don't know. I don't you know. There's there's no explanation for that. It's it's just it's simply this is a plot device meant to let the heroes have their chance at overcoming and doing the stuff odds yeah, yeah yeah and i understand it from a a story beat perspective like this is what we need to do in order for there to be this heroic moment i completely get that from an actual computer science perspective it makes no sense um there are some people who say wow it makes no sense that he's using a mac i want to address that very quickly <laughs> so we think of macs as being largely virus proof not so much as today as much as we used to but I would argue that the reason why Macs were less likely to fall victim to viruses is due to two things. One, Apple does lock its system down really tightly. Sure. So that does help. I mean, uh, the fact that, that it's so locked down meant that it was not as accessible to people who wanted to write code right. that could take advantage of it. Yeah, yeah, it was more difficult. But also there were fewer Mac users for a very long time. Exactly, Lauren. That is, that is the key. Right. There are fewer Macs when you look at. And so if, if you're trying to cause havoc, then really your your best bang for your buck is to go after uh, Windows PCs. systems. Yeah. yeah. You want to go after. Or P- yeah. PCs. Yeah. Because you certainly can't rule out uh, 
Yeah, but you, Alternate but, OSs. Although, I mean, Windows really was the thing you aimed for, because yeah. Windows had the majority of the share. So you want to go for a target-rich environment. Now, you could say that Windows was more had more vulnerabilities than Apple systems, which I, I'm not going to argue that. I think that's true. But it's not that the Mac was immune to viruses. It's that it had a lot working for it to prevent people from even trying to write viruses. From even bothering. Yeah, yeah. because if they're like, well, I could try and write a virus for Mac, and it might work, but I'm going to hit 5% of the computer population. When I could aim for 90%, which is going to get bigger results for me, I might as well focus on that. Anyway, I don't have a problem with the fact that he's using a Mac to design this code. My problem is... It shouldn't work anyway, whether it's a Mac or a PC or a Linux machine, Unix, doesn't matter because you're talking about an alien computer <laughs> system and a human computer system. So it doesn't matter which operating system you're using. Um, but anyway, that's his idea, and he, he shows it off in Area 51. He's able to turn the shields off and activate the ship's flight controls because apparently once you're able to connect your computer to the alien computer, you know what everything does. <laughs> like... Think about all the systems that would be required to make an alien ship work, especially considering the fact that uh, Jeff Goldblum's character, David, it is David, it because is David. Okay. when he bo- boots up his laptop, they, <laughs> right, have, right. they have the 2001 reference. Yeah, the 2001 reference of Dave, you know, uh, yeah. uh, good morning, Dave. Good morning, Dave. Yeah. Uh, don't reference better movies in your movies, people. Um, just reference worse movies. <laughs> Granted, it's hard to... Guess which movies are worse until you're done. But, you know, aim for really bad ones because then the odds are in your favor. Anyway, he uh, there's the 2001 reference, Good Morning Dave. So he's David and Steve is Will Smith's character. So, oh, okay. so Steve and Dave get into uh, their alien ship and blast off to go after the mothership, right? Well, think of all the systems that are required to make that work. You have to have... Uh, the propulsion systems, the flight systems, you have to have the life support systems. Thank goodness these aliens breathe oxygen. Right, because they're, they're, they're going to space. I, I mean, also, just from a, from a piloting standpoint, Will Smith's character just gets in there and kind of does it. And yeah, because he, he's seen how they fly. So, like, as in he's, he's seen, watched the ships go. Yeah, he's seen so how they move through an atmosphere. Therefore, he knows how they fly. And in space, too, because he's not space trained. Now, people, I've seen jets fly. I could not fly a jet. I've seen helicopters fly. I could not fly a helicopter. Just because I've seen how they move through a certain area doesn't mean I can fly them. Well, I mean, you know, he he is a trained fighter pilot. Um, Maybe a more apt description would be, you know, I've seen people drive Mack trucks, but I don't know how to drive a diesel truck. Okay, how about this? I have piloted a ship that was a sailing ship. I have never driven a motorboat. But okay. both of them do move through the water. The propulsion systems are totally that. different. Okay. But I, yeah, see, mm-hmm. that's what I'm saying is that being an expert on one does not mean that you're an expert on the other. It However, for the purposes of dramatic effect, let's sure. let it go. We're giving this movie a lot of passes right now. <laughs> um, also, we know that this episode's gone on really long. But uh, so we've got that. That's the big one that everyone points out is this computer virus that is designed to turn off the shields. And, of course, their goal is they, they have to get aboard the mothership in order for this to work. There's no way for them to beam the code directly to the mothership. I, they never explain how it is that by just getting into the proximity of the ship, they're able to get the code into the mothership. They don't explain that. So apparently proximity is necessary, but we don't know why. 
Like, why do you have Maybe to be in the ship? Maybe the, the the Mac into a into a uh, magnetic port within the ship, yeah, and may- then through the magnetic docking mechanism. That's it. Clearly, they get aboard. They get aboard the alien ship, and like, oh, sweet! It's got firewire. We're good to go. <laughs> Man, we would have been so boned if we hadn't had firewire in here. It's <laughs> clearly it. It's clearly that's it. obviously it. Um, yeah, and and also like all other um, programmers and hackers from the 1990s, he uses a um, a animated skull. Yeah, the Jolly uh, Roger. The Jolly Roger. Um, as, in, as in the his... symbol of the virus. Uh huh. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's that important. makes sense. It has to. Like, of you have course. to do that. And of course, they deliver a nuclear bomb uh, that has a 30 second timer on it to um, to destroy the mothership and then get out. There's no explanation as to why they picked 30 seconds, other than the fact, again. Dramatic, dramatic effect. effect. The idea being that this gives the the heroes an even uh, tougher challenge to escape the blast radius of a nuclear bomb before uh, they are affected by it. Um, and I haven't personally done the math on how fast you would have to fly in order to outfly an explosion, but I'm I'm almost. I mean, it's it's at least not outrunning an explosion, so I'm kind of yeah. It's a little better. It's a little better than having to outrun an explosion. Now, there's plenty of outrun, outrunning explosions in this movie, too, especially in the parts where the, the cities are being destroyed. But FYI, folks, don't tr- try not to ever put yourself in a position where you need to outrun an explosion because you would die. Yeah. Explosions move faster than you can run. Yes. Even you, Us- Usain Bolt. Don't try it. So, uh, yeah, it's... <laughs> The, we're getting toward the end of the movie here, so we got the explosion of the mothership, which is really odd. You pointed this out too, Lauren, that the explosion for the mothership has this weird kind of disc explosion. Yeah, like it doesn't explode out in all directions. It explodes the way that out, it would in space. Yeah, it explodes out in a plane, like a plane as in a horizontal plane. It's like you think of a a plate that's been smashed into a thousand pieces and there's just spreads apart, like in a horizontal plane. It doesn't go out in all directions. Alien is, explosions. Yeah. They're different. Maybe it's just because the way the ship was built. It's just really, really secure on the top and bottom. But there you the go. outer edge yeah. is just just paper mache. <laughs> just paper mache. Um, we don't know what it is that really causes the massive explosion within the the ship itself. I mean, apart from a nuclear bomb going off. But again, one nuclear bomb would not be enough to destroy a ship of that mass. Maybe they but, found the gas tank. Yeah. We're thinking like maybe there's fusion coils or something that were affected and that created some sort of, you know, I don't know. Maybe the nuclear bomb actually fell down a, a uh, ventilation shaft that led directly to the reactor core. And then Alderaan, I might be thinking of a different movie. I think, I think you are. Okay. <laughs> and then the, the, the very end of the movie has uh, Stephen Dave, who, you know, you don't know if they've survived, but... Surprise, they did. And they're they're walking down the desert and they're greeted by their respective women folk. And they are <laughs> And children folk. And children folk. And they are embraced and everyone's happy. And then uh uh Steve Will Smith's character leans down to his uh 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 his, the little boy that would would be his adopted son essentially, or his stepson, should he well, I guess he is a stepson now because I forgot. They got married. They got married they totally in the movie. Because yeah. you have to have that yet another emotionally manipulative moment. Um, so his stepson, he says to his stepson, didn't I promise you fireworks? And I thought, and only 812 million people had to die <laughs> for those fireworks to happen. Eh. And scene. <laughs> um, There's so much more in this movie. There's the part where where David, the Jeff Goldblum character, is riding to Washington, D.C. with his dad. And he p- opens up his laptop to pull up 
a uh, while in the car while in the car in 1996 when Wi-Fi essentially yeah there's does not no, exist. Yeah, he's not. I seriously doubt that he was using any kind of really primitive cellular data network to pull this information, especially since it was represented by graphics. It must have been stored uh, uh, locally. locally on the computer. But he pulls up all. Um, all phone books in the United States in order to find his ex-wife's phone number. And uh, I just thought it was funny they didn't just have the phone number written down. That the, This was obviously another one of those moments which, which designed to show you that this guy is good he with computers. He knows the computers. Yes. Computers and this guy are good friends. Yes. Uh, but it is also funny to think that today anyone with a phone can look up a phone book anywhere. Yeah, that's called the anytime. Internet. Yeah, the Internet. No. It, we do that now. Back in 1996, the web was young. It did exist, but it wasn't as robust as it is today. So, uh, I mean, there was no Google back in 1996. So that would have made it harder all by itself. Um, yeah, there's some, there's some really odd moments in this movie. Now, all that being said, we do understand, like we said at the top of the show, oh, this yeah. is for entertainment. It's, it is for entertainment purposes. And, and as much as Jonathan and I are kind of, uh, you know... Um, eviscerating? Eviscerating it a little bit right now. Um, it, it is, I mean, th- there are parts of it that are that are very entertaining and very funny. Right. And, uh, yeah. and it's, it's, designed, it's designed to be a popcorn movie. Now, yeah. that gives it some, somewhat of a pass. Uh, and, you know... If they had tried to make a movie that was as scientifically and technically accurate as possible, it probably would not have been as entertaining. Sure. Maybe they could have avoided some of the more melodramatic, emotionally manipulative scenes, Uh which I find, I don't know, at the time, at the time I didn't find it as irritating. But I was also dumber back well, then. Well, as, as an adult, you, you get more aware of that kind of thing. I mean, I don't know. I, I I certainly don't fault, especially big blockbuster movies like this, on on being light on the science. But but things that are just just blatantly not not right, not science. Yeah, I'm kind of like didn't. I mean, wasn't anyone? I mean, this this script had to have gone through multiple multiple treatments and all kinds of eyes. And I mean, studios like that are huge. It, it, you know, it was enormous. I so. think it, I think what would be fun to do maybe in the future is to come up with our list of movies that have the the worst portrayal of science and technology and not necessarily go through it like this like mm-hmm. th- this was a special thing that we did cuz i jokingly said that we should do it and then our, our and listeners said and the entire said, yes, internet do said do that thing so so this is what you get but maybe in the future we'll do more of an episode where we just kind of talk about some of the more ridiculous depictions of technology like hackers which has some really yeah. awful, awful mm. sequences. Like essentially anything that has depicted hacking as some sort of video Ooh, the game. The net with Sandra Bullock. The net is another great one. That was that uh, was a thing. But yeah, um, anything anything where where hacking is essentially like you are the plot. You are actually making your way through a three dimensional castle, and you have to avoid. Uh, skeletons, and this is actually the way hacking works. And if you can get to the treasure room, you get the files. There is a movie like that. I can show you the video clip after this is done. So maybe we'll do that at some point and just kind of give you a rundown on some of the movies that have. Or maybe do a few that are, that are really good. Yeah, there are a few out there that have done some great, some Mm -hmm. great work in, in representing what technology can actually do. And that wraps up this classic episode. You know, we would occasionally do these episodes where we would take a film that has a lot of technology in it. We've done it with the James Bond films, Star Wars, Independence Day, obviously, and we would go through and talk about how the technology was portrayed, how realistic was it, uh, did it set unrealistic expectations. If you guys would like us to do any more of those, let us know. Tell us some of the movies that we should really take a look at and kind of dissect. 
But uh, if you have any other suggestions, feel free to pop them my way. You can reach out on Twitter or Facebook. The handle for both is TechStuffHSW. And I'll talk to you again really soon. Tech Stuff is an iHeartRadio production. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Running a business is no cakewalk, but with SAP Concur Solutions, you can be ready for anything. You can manage travel, expenses, and AP all on one platform that's packed with AI and best practices, and that delivers it all through an easy, clear, I can't believe how simple that is experience. So while not much can be done about that guy who never fails to burn the microwave popcorn and stink up the entire office, with SAP Concur, you can easily handle almost anything else. Take control of your business finances today at concur.com. That's C-O-N-C-U-R dot com. It's brand new season two. I'm Marissa Thalberg. And I'm Stephen Wolf Bededa. And we're excited to be back having bigger, bolder, and always real conversations. Straight from the C-suite front lines of marketing, media, and more. We have great friends joining from people you may know, like Wilmer Valderrama and Bobby Burke. And people you'll want to know. So grab a coffee or, hey, even an Aperol Spritz and come join us on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Listen to brand new on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. This week, I talked to Tiffany Haddish in a hilarious, deep, thoughtful interview where we dive into family trauma, grief, sobriety, love, and dating. I got a big heart. And I'm very forgiving, but like, don't abuse it. It's been abused enough. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss this one. Hi there, I'm Bob Pittman, Chairman and CEO of iHeartMedia. Welcome to Math & Magic, Stories from the Frontiers of Marketing. This week, I'm talking to acclaimed musician and entrepreneur, Pitbull. I think that education is the real revolution because as much as we speak about all the problems that there is in society and the world today, my mother's always told me, son, don't worry. The world's always been coming to an end. Don't let it scare you out of living. Listen to Math & Magic on our very own iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts.